Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to synchromysticism, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And if you a copy of the Epstein book and other works at the farm's official store, which is thefarmpodcast.store, that is all one word, the farm, all one word, dot podcast, or excuse me, the farmpodcast.store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. We've got two separate tiers now. The first one comes with uh, two additional shows per month, which includes between three to four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And the upper tier also features all of that, plus monthly Zoom parties with Recluse and a bunch of other goodies, including ongoing investigations that I engaged in and updates on them. So, yeah, definitely think about that, folks. All right, guys, it's just me for this outing. But I promise I've got a juicy topic for y'all. It's a mysterious chivalric order. Many of you have probably heard of this one, but you've never seriously considered it. Like many powerful institutions, it's managed to hide in plain sight through much of its 200 plus year history. But over the course of this series, all shall be revealed. This is, you know, really a very personal investigation for me, I should add. I kind of went back to when I was uh, ironically working on the Epstein book I just told you guys about. Started to notice, among other things, how much of a role Ohio had really played in shaping what eventually became the American empire. And, you know, really what we would kind of think of as the uh, neoconservative or neocon movement politically. Uh, even though I would probably argue Theodore Roosevelt of New York was the nation's first true neocon, uh, William McKinley yeah, might have been the first neocon presidency in a lot of senses. So, and he was very much an Ohioan, and uh, so were many of the other presidents during that uh, time frame from the end of the Second World War uh, up through the First World War. Ohio wielded tremendous influence during that whole time frame and were really instrumental in setting the stage for what became the American Empire in the second half of the 20th century. Of course, I long wondered why Ohio of all places would this thirst for empire be so fanatical and specifically around the region of Cincinnati? Well, I think I finally got the answer to that question, especially when I went to the DC headquarters of uh, the group we're going to explore. And I gazed firsthand at some of their shrines and uh, other possessions. And it was quite telling, quite terrifying actually. And uh, one of those Patreon tiers, you'll get to see some of the images of what I'm talking about. But um, let's just uh, say Rome on the Potomac is no joke, kids. All right. So 
<clears throat> if we're going to be talking about mysterious chivalric orders, that means it's time for another installment in the farm's ongoing anti-mystery Babylon series. The title is, of course, derived from the legendary Mystery Babylon series launched by the conspiracy titan and former naval intelligence officer William Milton Cooper. The series purported to tell the hidden role secret societies, chivalric orders, and cults have played in world history. A fascinating and relevant topic, to be sure, but one of which Mr. Cooper did not always bring the best scholarship to, and this is despite having an entire episode dedicated to just his bibliography. So, this is the farm's attempt to demystify this topic, if it's even possible. Also, to shed a light on secret society, chivalric orders, and cults that often fly under the radar. Today's subject is a classic example of this. It is known as the Society of Cincinnati, and it has played a pivotal role in shaping the America we know today. Our constitution likely would not exist as it does today were it not for the Cincinnati, for instance, and that is only scratching the surface. The society's name derives from the Roman general from the Republican era known as Cincinnatus. This was a figure especially revered in colonial America. In 458 BC or thereabouts, he was living in poverty on his farm in the countryside when the Roman Senate asked him to lead a war against the, the Aqua, I believe. They even conferred dictatorial powers upon him that gave him absolute authority for six months. Cincinnatus took command of the legions and managed to vanquish his opponents in a matter of weeks. And within days, he surrendered his powers and returned to his plow. The officers of George Washington's Continental Army, uh, they like to look at Cincinnatus as a model of the selfless patriot, the citizen soldier who, despite wielding tremendous power in the military, quickly relinquished it and returned to civilian life at war's end. This was the kind of Republican vower that supposedly existed in Washington's officers' corps and what the society was meant to be in peace times. That's what they wanted the public to think at any rate. But in reality, the Cincinnati were born of intrigues. The genesis of the order grew out of a plot by officers of the Continental Army to mutiny, dispose of Congress, and install a military dictatorship. And did they really? Or was this just the nation's first false flag? That's one of several topics we're going to explore today in this special July 4th episode of The Farm. It's fitting because the 4th is one of the society's major holidays. Hence, this is the perfect time to start the process of airing their dirty laundry. So let's really get going with that then, kids. Okay, so fittingly, the history of the Cincinnati starts with the threat of a military coup. As we shall see, this is a recurring theme throughout the history of the society. As for the first instance, we have to go back to the American Revolution and reflect on a few things concerning the Continental Army, which the listeners should also keep in mind was a different beast than the legendary Minutemen militias. So by, the seven, by about 1780, they had the Continental Army, that is to say, 
had reason to be a little miffed. As I'm sure many of you with a precursory knowledge of the American Revolution are aware, the Continental Army was often underfed, ill-equipped, ill-trained, and beset by disease, harsh winters, and so forth, in addition to frequent defeats at the hands of the vastly superior British Army. It wasn't a fun time, to put it mildly. But the real insult to injury was the pay. I'm sure many of you are aware of the expression, not worth a continental. This dates to the Revolutionary War and the printing of money, which was something of a national pastime for both the state governments and the Constitutional Congress during this era. At the beginning of the war, continental was worth roughly the equivalent of one Spanish silver dollar. This would have been 1775. By 1780, the exchange was 40 to 1. And state currencies were even worse. It took roughly a thousand Virginia banknotes to match one silver dollar at one point. And this is most of our militaries, uh, both the Continental Forces and the militias, were being paid in. Needless to say, this was a disaster in the making. Many of the regular soldiers were small farmers where the officers managed larger setups, in some cases full-blown plantations. But in both cases, their farms had gone to seed, har-har, after years of neglect due to the war. So in many cases, not only were these men being paid in worthless money, but they were on the verge of being financially destitute because of their service. This is especially true of the enlisted men. It was the officers who took action, however. During the harsh winter at Valley Forge during 1770, many began resigning their commissions in mass. General George Washington was already desperate for experienced officers, giving this group tremendous leverage by these actions. To stop the floodgates, Washington got the Revolutionary Congress to tentatively support the British practice of offering officers half pay for life in exchange for their service. For a time, this carrot was able to hold off the discontent. But there was one problem. Congress had done little more than pay lip service to it. And they certainly had no way of funding it, as they lacked the means to tax. Nishu was at the heart of opposition half-pay for the military. It was seen as a slippery slope, granting the emerging U.S. government the ability to tax. In theory, this is what the state governments were rebelling against. At the forefront of this opposition was good old Thomas Jefferson, who would go on to become an enduring foe of the Cincinnati for years to come. Anyway, half-pay was debated in Congress for two years between 1777 and 1779, passing several times, then being rescinded. Finally, in 1780, in the wake of Benedict, Benedict Arnold's defection and the prospect of other officers would follow suit, Congress finally voted for a provision while providing no way of funding it. Many of the revolutionary officers were already greatly disillusioned with the Congress to begin with, and the struggle over half-pay convinced many of them if the emerging American nation was to survive, a much stronger central government was needed, which we will elaborate much more on as we continue with this show. Now, 
the war the american revolution that is to say effectively ended with the british surrender at yorktown in 1781 but both sides still maintained armies in the field for the next two years and there were a few minor skirmishes here and there but for the most part the last two years of the war were largely spent negotiating a treaty which was signed in paris in 1783 hence by that year the continental army could see the writing on the wall Congress, realizing they were no longer needed, was angling to dismantle the military ASAP, especially if the issue of half pay was still lingering. As early as the fall of 1782, plans were afoot to resolve the issue before Congress could disband it by the army itself, though. It was during that time that the Continental Forces from Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New York, New Jersey, and Maryland assembled at Newburgh, New York, to discuss the matter. They resolved to directly petition Congress for half pay for life with proper funding or failing that large, a large lump sum of money that could be distributed amongst themselves. At the forefront of these efforts was General Henry Knox. With Washington's blessing, several Knox's officers traveled to Philly and made their demands. Again, Congress sympathized, but did nothing. This was followed by an even larger meeting in December 1782 that brought together officers from the entire Continental Army. They once again assembled in Newburgh and once again resolved to issue their demands to Congress. The major difference is that this petition at this point warned Congress of dire consequences if the issue of pay was not resolved. Obviously, this caused some alarm in Philadelphia, which is where the Continental Congress was headquartered. But in certain quarters, they proposed the prospect of a military insurrection over pay represented a great opportunity. These quarters largely consisted of leading figures in the Federalist movement and the, which later became the political party, America's first political party, the Federalist Party. At the forefront were Alexander Hamilton, Washington's former aide-de-camp, uh, Governor Morris, and Robert Morris, the Continental Congress's superintendent of finance. All three men believed firmly that the new nation would no longer survive without the central government possessing the ability to tax. While they had made progress initially in getting the states to adopt a means of taxation for it became the Articles of Confederation, or the Confederation sentiment began to turn after Yorktown, which again is essentially where the Americans had won the revolution. By 1783, the states once again opted to reject giving the central government a means of taxation. The army and the Federalists quickly realized that they had mutual interests. Morris took it upon himself to start coaching the army delegates. It's Robert Morris, by the way, the army delegates on how to deal with Congress. Their performance was masterful. And by January 1783, Congress asked Robert Morris to put together a proposal for funding. But when Morris tried to take action, said state delegates, mainly from New England, refused to assent. The army had been hoping that their participation would lead to a union of public creditors among the financial classes to lobby Congress for the power to tax. 
This was due to the substantial public debt the United States at the time had. This would lead to a new system of national finance and credit for the emerging nation. Hamilton and Robert Morris put great effort into assembling a national union of public creditors to support the army, but nothing came of it. From there, it was realized a new strategy was needed after the money men did not uh, turn up. The Federalists began advocating a show of force. Officers were dispatched to Knox with leather, suggesting the army should mutiny and refuse to disband until pay was secured. Now, Knox made a show of refusing the request to lead the action, but expressed sympathy with the plotters. Meanwhile, Hamilton and Morris worked to spread rumors in Philadelphia of a coming coup that would replace Congress with a military dictatorship. After being rebuffed by Knox, Robert Morris and his fellow Federalists turned to General Horatio Gates. Gates was favorably disposed to the overtures and began meeting with his most trusted officers, along with representatives from the rest of the Continental Army, during February 1783. By March, the plot was seemingly ready to move forward. A statement was issued by Gates and his officers calling for an assembly of forces on March 11th. The statement issued on that day was known as the Newburgh, or excuse me, the statement uh, was issued on March 11th. They called for the assembly on March 13th. Excuse me, the assembly was March 13th. The statement was issued on March 11th. Okay, so as to the statement issued on March 11th, it was known as the Newburgh Address. For our purposes here, it's interesting to note that one of the officers working for Gates at the time and closely involved in these proceedings was Major Nicholas Fish of New York. This is a family that we'll be hearing a lot about, so keep him in mind. And the fact that he was there from the very beginning, this uh, ancestor of the Fish dynasty, okay? Because again, you're going to be hearing a lot about the Fish family throughout this series. All right. Now, just how serious this plot truly was has been much debated. Alexander Hamilton was already tipping George Washington off about it during mid-February, while the plotters themselves were urging Washington to take a firmer stance in regards to Congress. Once the Newburgh Address was issued, Washington acted swiftly and forbade his officers from beating on the uh, 11th. Rather, he would preside over a meeting already scheduled for the 15th where the army grievances should be addressed. In theory, he hadn't planned on attending, but now he had no choice. Washington did not disappoint. He prepared his remarks, brought tears to the eyes of many assembled, and Knox, a close friend of Washington, followed the general and petitioned everybody to reject the Newburg address and to work with Congress to secure pay. By and large, the discontent spread by Gates and his men was dispelled, save for General Thomas Pickering, who rose and tried to fan the flames once more. But his efforts failed, and the resolution was adopted by the army. Congress was nonetheless suitably shocked. So, on March 22nd, that's 322, by the way, an interesting date, no doubt, they adopted a resolution to give the army five years of back pay instead of half pay for life. And on April 18th, they proposed what amounted to an amendment to the articles allowing for imposts, taxes, in other words. 
However, this amendment would only take effect after all the states approved it. Congress was again banking on the army being disbanded before the issue could come to a head. And disband the army did. And before the back pay issue was resolved. But many of the senior officers, most notably our friend General Henry Knox, saw these developments as inevitable. Hence, he already had a plan for keeping pressure on Congress in the aftermath of the Army's disbandment. It was known as the Society of Cincinnati. In Knox's mind, it would be a national organization of performing military officers that could continue to pressure Congress and ensure their interests, the military men, that is to say, What's more, Knox was already planning the Cincinnati even before the Newburgh Address. Okay, let's step back and recap what's happened thus far. So a group of senior military officers start working with a group of powerful Federalist politicians in Philadelphia in what amounts to a scheme to impose a national system of taxation on the new nation. After the direct approach fails, rumblings of a pending coup start being heard in the city of brotherly love. Among the men sowing these rumors is our friend Alexander Hamilton, who at the same time is keeping Washington informed of the coup's, coup's developments. When a declaration is formally made, i.e. the Newburgh Address, Washington moves quickly to put the kibosh on it. He offers for the military some dramatic prepared remarks that leaves few dry eyes in the house and then departs. Then Henry Knox, one of the early plotters, steps up and seconds Washington motions for moderation. The officers then agree to take a five years pay instead of half pay for life. And more importantly, an amendment is proposed finally granting the Confederation the power to tax. Needless to say, I, I don't think many of the senior figures involved in these intrigues really gave a damn about the back pay issue. The senior officers were by and large wealthy men and would have gained little by keeping this matter alive indefinitely. Many of them probably prefer to return to their plantations ASAP where they could start making real money again, to say nothing of their financial houses and other businesses a lot of these characters owned. It was the younger junior officers, the men not yet established, who had taken greater risks in the back pay debate. Something needed to be done with them, and this was a psychodrama to give them an outlet for their anger on the one hand, and on the other, to wear their demands down greatly. The real issue at stake for the Federalists and their supporters in the Army including Washington, Knox, and virtually all the figures we've talked about thus far, was establishing a central government that had the power to tax. As such, the real possibility of Nuremberg as a false flag that was intended to pressure Congress into approving the means of taxation has to be given real consideration in this researcher's opinion. And as we shall see, this was an ongoing obsession with many of these individuals. But the Newburgh Address only accomplished so much. The only way to achieve long-term Federalist objectives would be to keep pressure on Congress. The Army was useful initially, but toying around with mutinies always leads to the possibility that things could go too far and get out of hand. 
Robert Morris and Alexander Hamilton had tried to establish a public creditors union as a congressional pressure group to work with the army and moderate it somewhat. This was part of Hamilton's ongoing plot to establish a national bank in these United States. Now, unsurprisingly, Hamilton has taken a beating at the hands of most alternative historians for the Bank of the United States. Ellen Brown and the Web of Debt offers a more nuanced take at what Hamilton and some of these other figures were attempting. So, in that matter, she writes, quote, while the founding fathers were pledging their faith in gold and silver as the only, quote, sound money, those metals were quickly proving inadequate to fund the new country's expanding economy. The national war debt had reached 42 million with no silver or gold coins available to pay it off. The debt might have been avoided if the government had funded the war with continental script that was stamped legal tender, making it money, quote unquote, in itself. But the revolutionary government and the states had issued much of their paper money as permissionary notes payable after the war. The notes represented debt, and the debt now had come due. The bearers expected to get their gold, and the gold was not to be had. There was also an insufficient supply of money for conducting trade. Tightening the money supply by limiting it to coins had quickly precipitated another depression. In 1786, a farmer's rebellion broke out in Massachusetts, led by Daniel Shays. Farmers brandishing pitchforks complained of going heavily into debt when paper money was plentiful. When it was no longer available and debts had to be repaid in much scarcer hard coin of the British bankers, some farmers lost their farms. The rebellion was diffused. But visions of anarchy solidified the sense of an urgent need for both a strong central government and an expandable money supply. I'm going to interject here for just a moment and say there's a lot more to Shays' Rebellion than just that. And the Cincinnati, we're deeply involved in all aspects of this, but that's not something we're going to get in this installment. That'll be in part two. Anyway, continuing with uh, Ellen Brown here in Web of Debt. The solution of Treasury Secretary Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, was to, quote, monetize the national debt by turning it into a source of money for the country. He proposed that a national bank be authorized to print up banknotes and swap them for government bonds. The government would pay regular interest on the debt using import duties and money from the sale of public lands. Opponents said that acknowledging the government's debted face value would unfairly reward the speculators who had bought up the country's IOUs for pittance from the soldiers, farmers, and small businessmen who had actually earned them. But Hamilton argued that the speculators had earned this windfall for their faith in the country. He thought the government needed to enlist the support of the speculators, or they would go to the new country's money, what they had done to the Continental. Vernon Parrington, a historian writing in the 1920s, said, quote, In developing his policies as Secretary of Treasury, Hamilton applied his favorite principle, the government and property must join in close working alliance. It was notorious that during the revolution, men of wealth had forced down the continental currency for speculative purposes. Was it not as certain that they would support an issue in which they were interested? 
the private resources of wealthy citizens would thus become an asset of government for the bank would link quote the interest of the state in an intimate connection with those of the rich individuals in quote and in, in brown's text okay so now continue with brown proper hamilton thought that the way to keep the wealthy speculators from destroying the new national bank was to give a financial stake in it he proposed his proposal would do this and dispose of the government's crippling debts at the same time by allowing creditors to trade their government bonds or ious for stock in the new bank uh, I'm going to interject here for a moment too. Hamilton was not disinterested in this process. The wealthy speculators who had bought up the debt from soldiers, uh, nor were the members of the Society of Cincinnati. It was actually a really big thing for them, which will be a topic we will also get to in the second installment. But do keep it in mind, this whole issue with speculation on this debt is huge to understanding the history of the Society of Cincinnati. Okay, so continuing with Brown here in Web of Debt. Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton's chief political opponent, feared that giving private wealthy citizens an ownership interest in the bank would link their interests too closely with it. The government would be turned into an oligarchy, a government by the rich at war with the working classes, a bank owned by private stockholders whose driving motive was profit would be less likely to be responsive to the needs of the public than one that was owned by the public and subject to public oversight. Stockholders of a private bank would make their financial decisions behind closed doors without public knowledge or control. But Hamilton's plan had other strategic advantages, and it won the day. Besides neatly disposing of a crippling federal debt and winning over the men of wealth, it secured the loyalty of the individual states by making their debts too exchangeable for stock in the new bank. This move was controversial, but by stabilizing the state's shaky finances, Hamilton got the states on board, thwarting the plans of the pro-British faction that hoped to split them up by establishing a northern confederacy. It's another thing we'll get to in another installment, probably, but again, don't want to get too sidetracked in the weeds here. Okay, so continuing with Brown. Alexander Hamilton's goal was first and foremost a strong federal government. He was the chief author of the Federalist Papers, which helped to get the votes necessary to ratify the Constitution and form the basis for much of it. The preamble of the Constitution made promoting the general welfare a guiding principle of the new republic. Hamilton's plan for achieving this ideal was to nurture the country's fledging industries with protective measures such as tariffs, taxes placed on imports or exports, and easy credit provided through a national bank. Production and the money to finance it would all be kept, quote, in-house, independent of foreign financiers. Senator Henry Clay later called this the American system to distinguish it from the, quote, British system of free trade. Clay was a student of Matthew Carey, a well-known printer and publisher, who had been tutored by Benjamin Franklin. When Clay called the British system, what Clay called the British system was rooted in the dog-eat-dog -dog world of Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and Scottish economist Adam Smith. Smith maintained in his 1776 book, The Wealth of Nations, that every man pursued his own greed. All would automatically come out right, 
as if by some invisible hand. Proponents of the American system rejected the laissez-faire approach in favor of guiding and protecting the young country with a system of rules and regulations. They felt that if the economy were left to free market, big monopolies would gobble up small entrepreneurs, foreign bankers and industrials could exploit the country's labor and materials, and competition would force prices down, ensuring subjugation to British imperial interests. The British model assumed that one man's gain could occur only through another's loss. The goal was to reach the top of the heap by climbing on competitors and driving them down. In the American vision of the Commonwealth, all men would rise together by leavening the whole heap at once. A republic of sovereign states would work together for the mutual benefit, improving their collective lot by promoting production, science, industry, and trade, raising the standard of living, and the technological practices of all by cooperative effort. It was an idealistic reflection of the American dream, which assumed that the best in people and in human potential. This was a vision, but in the sort of neglected compromises that has long characterized politics, it got lost somewhere in the details. Okay, continuing with Brown. Hamilton argued that to promote the general welfare, the country needed a monetary system that was independent of foreign masters, and for that, it needed its own federal central bank. The bank would handle the government's enormous war debt and create a standard from a form of currency. Jefferson remained suspicious of Hamilton and his schemes, but Jefferson also felt strongly that the new country's capital city should be in the South, in his home state of Virginia. Hamilton, who did not care where the capital was, agreed on the location of the national capital in exchange for Jefferson's agreement on the bank. When Hamilton called for a tax on whiskey to pay the interest on the government's securities, however, he went too far. Jefferson's supporters were furious. In the type of political compromise still popular today, President Washington proposed moving the capital even closer to Mount Vermont. In 1789, Congress passed Hamilton's bill, and the president still had to sign it. Washington was concerned about the continued opposition of Jefferson and the Virginians, who thought the bill was unconstitutional. The public would have to use the bank, but the bank would not have to serve the public. Hamilton assured the president to protect the public, the bank would be retired to retain a percentage of gold and reserves so that it would redeem in paper notes and gold or silver on demand. Hamilton was eloquent. And in 1791, Washington signed the bill into law. Okay. I want to interject here too, when they talk about this tax on whiskey, this also brings up the Whiskey Rebellion, which is another incident that society played a role in, which we will address in another installment. Again, keep this in mind. A lot of this stuff is playing out with the Society of Cincinnati in the background, helping to drum up support for a lot of Hamilton's schemes. Okay, continuing with Brown. The new banking scheme was hailed as a brilliant solution to the national's economic straits, one that disposed of oppressive national debt, stabilized the economy, funded the government's budget, and created confidence in the new paper dollars. If the new Congress had simply printed its own money, speculators would have challenged the currency's worth and driven down its value just as they had during the revolution. 
to maintain public confidence in the national currency and establish stability, the new republic needed the illusion that the dollars were backed by the banker's gold. And Hamilton's bank successfully met that challenge. It got the country up and running, but it left the bank largely in private hands where it would, could still be manipulated for private greed. Worse, the government ended up in debt for money it could have generated itself. Indeed, should have generated itself under the Constitution. The charter for the new bank fixed its total initial capital at $10 million. $8 million was to come from private stockholders and $2 million from the government. But the government didn't actually have $2 million. So the bank, now a chartered lending institution, lent the government the money as at interest. The bank, of course, did not have the money either. The whole thing was a sleight of hand. The rest of the bank's shares were sold to the public, who bought some in hard cash and some in government securities, the IOUs that had been issued by the revolutionary government in the states. The government had to pay 6% interest annually on all the securities now held by the bank, which again, a lot of those securities to interject here were owned initially by Society of Cincinnati members who now are getting interest off of this, which we'll talk about later. Continuing now with Brown, those exchanged for loan of the government's own money plus the bonds accepted by the bank from the public. The bank's shareholders were supposed to pay one-fourth the cost of their shares in gold, but only the first installment was actually paid in hard money, totaling about $675,000. The rest was paid in paper notes, banknotes. Some came from the Bank of Boston and the Bank of New York, but most of the paper money was issued by the new U.S. bank itself and lent back to its new shareholders through the magic of, quote, fractional reserve lending. Within five years, the government had borrowed $8.2 million from the bank. The additional money was obviously created out of thin air, just as it would have been if the government had printed the money itself but the government now owned the principal and interest back to the bank. To reduce its debt to the bank, the government was eventually forced to sell its shares, largely to British financiers. Now, Zerlinga reports that Hamilton, to his credit, uh, Hamilton opposed these sales. But the sales went through, and the first bank in the United States would wound up largely under foreign ownership and control. So uh, Brown concludes in terms of Hamilton's legacy and that of his bank. Alexander Hamilton remains, or excuse me, he remains a controversial figure, but Hamilton earned his place in history. He succeeded in stabilizing the shaky new economy and getting the country on its feet. And his notions of monetizing debt and federalizing the banking system were major innovations. He restored the country's credit and gave it a national currency, made it economically independent, and incorporated strong federal provisions into the Constitution that would protect and nurture the young country according to a uniquely American system founded on, quote, promoting the general welfare. Those were his positive contributions, but Hamilton also left a darker legacy. 
lurking behind the curtain of his new national bank. A privileged class of financial middlemen were now legally entitled to siphon off the perpetual tribute in the form of interest. And because they controlled the money spigots, they could fund their own affiliated businesses with easy credits, squeezing out competitors and perpetuating the same class divisions that the American system was supposed to have circumvented. The money power had been delivered into private hands and they were largely foreign hands. The same interests that had sought to keep America and colonial states subservient to elite class of oligarchical financiers. Who were these foreign financiers and how had they acquired so much leverage? And I will wrap up with Brown there. I would probably dispute that they were not all entirely foreign, as we shall see. There were quite a few American ones as well who used those IOUs that she talks about. And, uh, uh, well, they were kind of the basis for what could have potentially become a Western empire if uh, Hamilton had not gotten his way, let us just say. There were a lot of intrigues going on with all of this. So... You know, it is common to um, really rag on Alexander Hamilton. I mean, obviously, he's not the most lovable figure. But some of the things that he did, as Brown alluded to, were positive. Now, you have to kind of keep in mind at the time of the American Revolution, uh, the United States was very much a developing nation. I mean, we basically uh, supplied the British and other European powers with raw materials for their emerging industrial bases. The American system that Brown is outlining here, which had its basis in what Alexander Hamilton envisioned, transformed America from being a developing nation into a major industrial power in the span of a little less than a century. I mean, it was one of the most miraculous transformations ever. And this is despite the fact that Hamilton's system was largely rejected, um, I want to say, from about the time of Andrew Jackson up until when it was uh, gradually brought back in the aftermath of the Civil War. So even then, it's still accomplished quite a bit. Okay. Now, again, though, I, I don't want to get, you know, too much into romanticism here. It needs to be, you know, understood. This also created institutions like the company town, all kinds of labor unrest and just brutal exploitation in general of the workers to say nothing of the trauma of relocating in a Caribbean society into the cities and all this other ensuing stuff. This was the dark side of this. However, this did ensure that America emerged with us independence from the European powers. This didn't always do us a lot of good with our ruling elite, but there were some positives. Not saying that there weren't negatives either. There definitely were lots of negatives, and that needs to be emphasized. There's also the whole issue here of the general welfare clause, which Hamilton favored a very creative interpretation of. And as far as the Constitution goes, this is still an ongoing debate. I mean, this is kind of at the heart of what we're certainly seeing now with Roe v. Wade. A lot of the Jeffersonians and so forth favored a more literal interpretation. Hamilton kind of thought that you could use certain phrases like that and, you know, play around with them a little bit to uh, do things that the Constitution didn't necessarily spell out, like charter a bank for the United States. So there's a lot about this that, you know, cuts to deep 
of the heart of uh, a lot of ongoing issues that have uh, been with this country really from the beginning. Slavery is another issue that kind of played into a lot of these debates, which we'll get into in a, um, a later installment in this series. This is an issue that the Cincinnati were very passionate about. They were staunchly anti-slavery, and that was another major point of contention with the Jeffersonian Republicans. But again, we'll get into that in another installment. All right, so enough about Hamilton and the bank, at least for now. And it's a few years down the road. At this time, the major initiative uh, in the regard was the public creditors union and that it failed. The military was a dicey proposition. So it fell to Knox and the Cincinnati to keep the plan going. Just how far back plans for the Cincinnati go are a matter of debate. Thomas Jefferson recounts how John Adams gave him an account of Knox envisioning an order like the Cincinnati as far back as 1776. Regardless, plans were certainly in the works for it formally by 1782, if not sooner. In addition to Knox, other leading figures were Jedediah Huntington and Baron Frederick Wilhelm von Steuben. Of course, there would be Germans. In fact, we'll be hearing a lot about Germans. <laughs> the latter was a Prussian military officer who uh, had served as an aide-de-camp to Frederick the Great during the Seven Years' War. Intrigues led him to being abruptly discharged from the Prussian military in 1763. After bouncing around Europe for 11 years, he was recruited as a mercenary by Benjamin Franklin in Paris during 1775. George Washington quickly realized his ability and made him the Army's Inspector General. It was from this post that von Steuben undertook the task of reorganizing the Continental Army and making it into a competent fighting force. He remained in America after the war, becoming a citizen in 1778. At the time of his arrival in the States, von Steuben was already a member of the Order of Fidelity, a Prussian chivalric order. This, has, uh, this may have laid the seeds for what became an obsession with creating America's very first chivalric order in the minds of some of his fellow continental officers. Another important early figure in the Cincinnati was Knox's aide-de-camp, Captain Samuel Shaw. Like Knox, Shaw hailed from a prosperous family of Boston merchants. Shaw would play a crucial role in helping organize the society. Later, he became something of a fixer for several leading figures in the Society of Cincinnati, as we shall see in another installment. Shaw's uh, actually a really interesting guy. I have a bit of a personal interest in this figure as well. <laughs> as Knox originally envisioned it, the society would be a hereditary order made up of the officers' corps of the Continental Army and succeeded by, quote, their oldest male posterity. Naturally, Knox characterized this version as a, quote, society of friends. Horatio Gates and his followers were also working on similar notions of what was effectively an order of knighthood of Revolutionary War officers, that is to say, during the same time frame. Unsurprisingly, both camps were able to find common ground pretty quickly. Like most contemporary shipwreck orders, Knox framed the society as a charitable network as well, where the membership would band together to provide for the widows and orphans of fellow members as Congress seemed unwilling to act in that regard. 
Despite the festering hatred of the Articles of Confederation within the army, Knox structured the Cincinnati along those lines. The order would have three levels, a national, a state, and county level. But like the article, the state societies would be supreme. They would meet yearly, just uh, verify the qualifications of members and then expel them as needed. The county societies would meet every three months, chiefly to collect contributions for the needy. And finally, the national chapter would meet once every three years. Every member would be invited to attend. National officers would be deemed indispensable to these meetings, however. The yearly meetings of the state societies were always to be held on the 4th of July. Interestingly, the national meetings were to be held on April 19th every three years. April 19th was the date of the American victories at Lexington Concord during 1775, which were also the first battles of the Revolutionary War. Eight years later, the peace was announced to much of the military, such as those officers gathered at Newburgh on April 19th. Even though I think the treaty was actually signed on the 16th, if I remember correctly. Anyway, many years later, the date of April 19th would take on a much more ominous light. It's of great significance in many far-right circles. And this is due to its connection to the Waco siege and the Oklahoma City bomb. As to the former, it ended on April 19, 1993, with the flaming deaths of David Koresh and his followers. As for Oklahoma City, the bombing occurred on that day in 1995. Also, Richard Wayne Snail, a member of the right-wing cult, the Covenant, the Arm, the Sword of the Lord, or CSA, was executed on that same day. Some believe the timing of the Oklahoma City bombing was meant to coincide with Snell's execution on the 19th. Further, April 19th is obviously the day before 420, which is big in Nazi circles. You see, that's actually Hitler's birthday, among other things. So a big time of the year for far-right circles is that kind of April 19th, April 20th uh, time frame there. So it's, it's interesting that it also has ties to the Cincinnati we shall see the society of Cincinnati were the OG America first, seriously, literally, which we'll get into. Exactly a month after the dramatic meeting at Newburgh, as we return to the 18th century, General Henry Knox had drawn up the basics for the Cincinnati. By this point, he was chomping at the bit to disband the army, even with no sign of pensions in sight. Knox and many of the senior officers were becoming concerned about discontent breaking out that they couldn't control. And on the other hand, by sending so many of the junior officers home empty-handed, he ensured that he had a highly motivated base for the society he envisioned. So through the society, the struggle over pensions would continue. But it was not long before the Cincinnati developed even more ambitious aims, assuming they hadn't already been baked in from years ago. Consider this statement from Knox's founding document from 1783. He notes that the society holds, quote, an unalterable determination to promote and cherish between the states the union and national honor is so essentially, essentially necessary to their happiness 
and the future and dignity of the American empire. Okay. The ink has barely dried okay, on the, the, the treaty. The future dignity of the American empire. And in 1783, I mean, the peace treaty of the British, the ink is still drying. Literally, what's more, this is clearly a reference to the society's desire for the national government to be able to tax. It's all about the dignity, folks. Hence, they're setting themselves up in opposition to the articles from the get-go, the Articles of Confederation. And they had the means to do so. Setting up the Cincinnati at the national state levels was a stroke of genius as it enabled them to keep equal pressure on both sets of governments. What's more, being the only real political institution outside of Congress with the national scope at this point, it had immediate advantage over local concerns. Given its military background, this made many weary from the beginning. Rather than Congress being usurped by the army, it was now the Cincinnati that would be reckoned with. And then later, when the nation did get its first political party, the Federalist Party, as I had mentioned before, was largely dominated by the Society of Cincinnati. So it was the first real, true political machine the nation ever saw after its independence. The society was formally established during mid-May 1783, before the army disbanded. Naturally, the founding was a new bird. Virtually all the figures I've mentioned, Knox, Pickering, Washington, Hamilton, Shaw, Steuben, Huntington, Gates, they were all founding members, joined shortly thereafter. Also, Robert Morris, he was a big one, too. The first national convention was set for June 19th as the armies were marching home. It was at this event, as participants got an eyeful of the elaborate... Uh, investments and so forth that the group planned that it became evident to all that the Cincinnati were not just a charitable organization but an order of knighthood modeled upon their European counterparts. As an interesting side note, during the same summer George Washington was approached by a Polish outfit called the Knights of the Order of Divine Providence. For a fee, they offered to make 36 of his officers knights in the order. So Washington consulted with Congress before deciding anything. Curiously, there was some suspicion that the order was German rather than Polish, which sparked a minor investigation. It didn't take Congress long to reject the officer offer. To the mind of Thomas Jefferson, this was a censor of the Society of Cincinnati as well. Whether the American group had planned some kind of overlap with the Polish order is unknown, but it's likely it wasn't a coincidence that the offer was made not long after the American society was established. It's probably been actually just a couple of months afterwards. So there's a lot about this incident of note. The possible German connection is interesting, certainly, but so is the Polish one, guys. If you've followed me for an extended period of time, you probably know that I've been obsessed with various bogus American chivalric orders claiming descent from the Sovereign Order of St. John, otherwise known as the Knights of Malta. Virtually tr all trace their origins back to the Ur Sovereign Order of St. John, founded by confidence man Charles Pichel during the 1950s. 
Now, throughout the Cold War, these outfits would be deeply implicated in right-wing terrorism and the Christian identity movements. One of the more militant successors to Pichel's outfit claimed an alliance was something known as the Order of the White Eagle, supposedly a Polish order. Now, as I detailed in one of the shows I did with George of Cabdad, there were rumblings of a right-wing terror network called Underground. Why did I bring this up? Well, military orders were never very popular with Polish nobility, unlike much of the rest of Europe. I couldn't find a reference to this order of divine providence. In fact, from what I can tell, there were only two Polish chivalric orders functioning in 1783. One was the Order of St. Stanislaus, and the other was the Order of the White Eagle. One of the few details I could get about the Order of Divine Providence in Washington's, uh, uh, is that Washington's officers would have seen fancy badges with a star. This is in keeping with the policies of the Order of the White Eagle, which often made members pay top dollar for these badges. Inversely, the Stanislaus outfit was for Polish nobles who could prove their lineage back four generations. So there is a chance that it was actually the White Eagle that contacted the Cincinnati. What's more, the modern White Eagle order was suspected of being a German order rather than a Polish one. Oh, this is just really interesting in light of the fact that the Ur Sovereign Order of St. John, the Pitchell headed uh, from the 50s onward, claimed to have uh, originated from the World War I era in New York City, which the Society of Cincinnati had a really strong presence in, as we shall see. But I digress. We'll maybe get into that in one of the latter installments in this series. Before wrapping up this installment, I wanted to briefly outline the extent of the group's political influence mere years after the society was founded. And there's no better instance than this of the Constitutional Convention, which kicked off in 1787, a mere four years after the group was founded. During the preceding year, much controversy had emerged surrounding the society, most notably the role they played in Shea's Rebellion. As the country's only secular body operating in a national level and largely composed along military lines at this point, the Cincinnati had shown a remarkable ability to organize at the onset of the rebellion. But that's a topic that we'll touch on in the next installment. But suffice to say the role they played in putting down the rebellion, say nothing of the intrigues they inspired surrounding it, made a lot of people really freaking nervous, as did the rebellion itself. So while Shea's rebellion had convinced many sections of American society a strong central government was necessary, there was equal concern that things could go too far. Throughout 1787, future President John Adams received numerous correspondences expressing concern that the Cincinnati wouldn't stop at a strong central government, but would attempt to install a full-blown monarchy at the looming convention to discuss the Articles of Confederation. Adams' correspondences weren't alone in this belief. When the convention kicked off in May of 1787, both French and British observers speculated that the Cincinnati had designs on either placing a crown on George Washington's head or importing a monarch from Europe. Elsewhere, Thomas Jefferson wrote Washington from Paris advocating for the Society of Cincinnati's abolishment. 
Jefferson was one of the fiercest critics of Cincinnati, as I've noted before, firmly believing that it had designs on establishing a hereditary aristocracy in America. 1787 also witnessed the Cincinnati's second national conference, which in which the president general would once again be decided. So Washington had been the first head of the society, as is somewhat famously known, and now he was under some pressure to step down. It was thought that this would be a crucial first step in dissolving the society, as Washington's support was again seen as essential to it being founded and its continuation. Both Washington and Jefferson were already angling to become the chief executive in the new government that was emerged by this time. Jefferson's attempts to get Washington to disband the Cincinnati during this time frame surely played into these intrigues. Again, keep in mind, it was a powerful political machine and Washington was basically the head of it. Bad blood already existed between Jefferson and the Cincinnati by this point, and things would only become more antagonistic as time went on, but we'll get into that in the next installment. Now, there's no question that there was a strong Cincinnati presence at the Constitutional Convention. It's unknown how many Freemasons were present, but it's believed to be at least 25 of the 55 delegates have been Masons at one point in their lives, though only 11 of the 39 signers of the pact were at the time Freemasons. The Cincinnati were not far behind them. Of the 55 delegates, 21 of them were members of the society and 14 signed off on the new constitution. While they couldn't quite match the Masons in sheer numbers, it's important to remember the Cincinnati were a far more exclusive outfit. There were only about 2,300 Cincinnati in the entire country at the time. I don't have the numbers on Freemasons, but there were probably more of them in Philadelphia alone by that era. And yet the Cincinnati were the organization that seemed to have inspired the most concern they were the only ones referenced, or they were only referenced directly once uh, by name during the convention, but the context is telling. It was during discussions that led to the creation of the Electoral College. The Cincinnati, despite their aristocratic sentiments, were actually held up as an argument against popular, de popular democracy. Elbridge Gerry, a longtime foe of the Cincinnati, warned the convention that the Cincinnati would use their national reach to manipulate democracy towards their own ends, convincing the masses to elect candidates of their choosing. Thus, the Electoral College was needed as a check on clandestine organizations undermining popular democracy. It's an interesting argument, while never brought up again formally in the convention, several other people, such as George Mason, also expressed similar concerns privately about the Cincinnati during the convention. And interestingly, Freemasons were never invoked, even though they had a much larger national membership in this regard. But again, the Masons probably lacked the discipline, order, and reach of the militaristic Cincinnati. It probably goes without saying, but the relationship between the Masons and the Cincinnati is a highly complex one. I'll explore this topic more in the next installment, but suffice to say there was a lot of overlap with the Cincinnati and the Masons on the one hand, with many men being members of both bodies, but the aims of either groups were arguably quite different. The extent to which the Cincinnati influenced what became the U.S. Constitution will never be known, due in no small part 
uh, to the secrecy surrounding their activities of certain state branches, or and also the activities of certain state branches during the time of the convention. We do know that in 1788, once the Constitution was ratified, Society member John Dottie wrote General Knox expressing his exuberance and belief that Cincinnati, that the Cincinnati should be credited with the new government. But Dottie was probably going a little too far. There's no question the Cincinnati got much of what they were after at the convention. What can be said is that there were roughly four major plans put forth for a new form of national government at the convention. The two most famous were the Virginia plan, largely conceived of by future president James Madison, um, and the New Jersey plan. Uh, Alexander Hamilton also put forth a monarchist scheme, and which will be said more here in a moment. And there was also a plan put forward by Charles Pickney of South Carolina. Now, both Pickney and Hamilton were Cincinnati, while the Virginia plan was being co-sponsored by another society member, Edmund Randolph. So basically all four major proposals other than the New Jersey one were supported by the Cincinnati. Despite the Virginia uh, being among the most anti-federalist regions in the entire country, the Virginia plan was endorsed. The Virginia plan did endorse the kind of strong government both the Federalists and the Cincinnati wanted of course, since the Cincinnati controlled the Federalist Party, this is not surprising. But pushing the scheme for Virginia via Madison, who was not a Federalist or a member of the society, was a stroke of genius. Virginia was expected to offer up the staunchest resistance. Thus, the society may have opted to push the Virginia plan to the forefront as the way of overcoming this resistance. And as you may have guessed, a strong central government, specifically the chief executive, was at the forefront of the Cincinnati's agenda. Indeed, members of the society, most notably Alexander Hamilton, had openly advocated for something resembling a constitutional form of monarchy during the convention. What's more, there are indications that the Cincinnati may have done more than have... Um, they may have done more than have one of their members propose a constitutional monarchy at the convention. Fellow Cincinnati <clears throat> founder Baron von Steuben had written Prince Henry of Prussia earlier in the year to gauge his interest in assuming an American throne if one became available. There were also rumblings that Hamilton's New York-based law firm was engaged in copying a proposal they called on the Duke of York to assume the American throne. <clears throat> this was apparently part of a British scheme in which the U.S. would receive Canada, Nova Scotia, and all other British American territories in exchange for accepting one of the sons of King George III as King of the United States. Uh, presumably, the British saw this as uh, preferable to the Americans enlisting the Germans or, God forbid, the French royal families. While nothing in the Cincinnati's official records has emerged to confirm this plot, at least one member, David Humphreys, left glowing letters to Hamilton expressing support for the Duke in Connecticut. He also wrote letters to the Bishop of Nova Scotia expressing how the Cincinnati may be instrumental in reuniting the U.S. and the U.K. during this time. Just how serious the Cincinnati were concerning these schemes will never be known. 
what can be said uh, was that with European noble being brought into service, American bonharchy being held up as a possibility, the prospect of a strong chief executive, but not an office for life, no longer seemed to be so extreme. To be sure, when the convention wrapped, much concern was expressed over what later became the office of the presidency. Some critics thought that it was little more than an uncrowned monarchy, while others felt that it was mere transition to monarchy. On 1787, Washington himself seemed to express such sentiments, noting that uh, the time for non-monarchy simply had, quote, not yet arrived, end quote. What had arrived was a strong presidency, just as the Cincinnati had wanted and Washington's moderation through the convention ensured that he remained at the head of the pact to assume the office. I suspect this is what the Cincinnati had expected all, or had hoped for all along. Thus, the monarchist scheme that the British and French observers remarked upon, as well as early American power brokers, were buzzing about in 1787 as the convention kicked off may have been another instance of a false flag. Hamilton made a great show proposing monarchy before the convention, knowing full well that there was no way the American public would accept such a proposal after having fought just a war to rid themselves of a king, especially if it involved enshrining a freaking British royal as an American king. And yet he persisted and would even continue to make these arguments via the famed Federalist Papers. And again, if I don't know on a personal note, if you guys have ever read uh, the account of Hamilton's proposal before the Constitutional Convention of um, appointing effectively an American monarchy, it, even just reading an account of it, I mean, you can just tell that it fell flat. I mean, that's an understatement to put it mildly. I mean, the description of it makes it very clear there was a profound sense of awkwardness in the room throughout the entire proposal. It's just one of those things where everybody in the room seemed to just be thinking, what the fuck is this? So, yeah, it's just one of those things like, what was this even about? Alexander Hamilton was many things. Certainly, it seems virtually everything he did had a purpose. I just can't imagine him investing this kind of time and effort in what was a no-win debate on his part unless he had an ulterior motive. So I propose that by helping, by hyping up this constitutional monarchy, he was hoping to scare the public into believing it was viable. Same with these possible discussions with the Duke of York and these, you know, other things that von Steuben was doing. This made the real agenda, namely a strong presidency, seem more moderate by contrast. And it certainly worked. Despite much anticipation of a drawn-out battle, the Constitution was ratified by the first 10 states that was put to vote before, ensuring that it would pass. No doubt it helped that the Federalist Party was highly active on the state and local level, organizing voters to support the Constitution. And at this point in time, the Cincinnati was essentially a circle of Federalists. And naturally, Cincinnati Federalists were delegates on all the state committees in which the Constitution had to pass through. Now, that being said, they didn't all vote in unison for the Constitution, nor were they all Federalists. I should point that out. There was a contingent of anti-Federalists, many of whom eventually joined Jefferson's Democratic Republicans among their ranks. 
but the overwhelming majority of them supported the Federalist, the Constitution, and a strong presidency. And they surely got what they wanted. And what was arguably America's first truly national election? Well, I guess that's a matter of debate, but it was at least the second major one at any rate. A clandestine group had been harnessed to guide the nation's only major political party leading up to the vote. The agenda this group wanted was widely embraced by said party, which was used to staggering effect at local levels to organize voters. And there are even hints at a false flag and other intrigues to scare said voters into supporting the Constitution, but before them. In many ways, the actions of the Cincinnati during the ratification of the Constitution would lay the foundation for how American electioneering would proceed henceforth to this present day. Not bad, eh? And on that note, we shall wrap up for now. The second part will be up on the Farns Patreon, hopefully by the middle of July. There I'm going to explore the intrigues the Cincinnati played in both Shays' Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion, as well as their threats to establish a military dictatorship in Northwestern territories. I'll further explore the relations with the Freemasons as well as the Illuminati. Yes, I mean the infamous Bavarian Illuminati. As you might imagine, that's quite a tale in and of itself. So too are the stories behind some of the other families in the Cincinnati. You don't want to miss out on the rest of the series, kids, as it has some serious implications for the founding of this nation and what is really and what was really behind it and most likely where we're going. And on that note, I am going to sign off for now. Again, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. It's been a blast for me doing this research, and hopefully you guys are getting something out of it. And if nothing else, I hope this has certainly made you reconsider 4th of July. The same time frame, the Society of Cincinnati is gathering for their state meetings, no doubt. Well, hopefully this podcast has finally shed some light on this group and will spark some real discussion about their true legacy in the history of these United States. And with that, I say to you all, good night and good luck to you all.